The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus himself stood among the disciples and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Of the things that are clear in the Bible's accounts of the first Easter, and let's be clear, there are things that aren't clear at all. I mean, there are differences in the tellings of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John's first Easter stories, differences which, by the way, in my mind, make the Gospels more believable, not less so. Because in my mind, and I realize it is a very tiny little space, but nevertheless, in my mind, if something as worldview-shattering as someone being dead... And by dead, I don't mean mostly dead, and I don't mean 90 minutes in heaven dead, and I don't mean emergency room dead, and then clear, back again from the dead. I mean dead, dead. Dead for days, and then back again. If claims about something as worldview-shattering as someone being that dead, and then three days later no longer being dead, produced detail-for-detail identical reports from those on those early-on moments when his not-deadness was first revealed, that would really sound fishy to me. That would be hard to believe. Because when things happen that you never thought would ever happen because, because, my gosh, things like this could never possibly ever happen, when things like that nevertheless do happen, eyewitnesses, when microphones are shoved into their face by eager reporters there to get the first scoop on things, eyewitnesses don't ever then all say the same things. They say all kinds of different things, which includes saying conflicting things. And all those things that are then said, because they were said, they can't be unsaid. And they take on a life of their own. And even though not every single detail of what was said then is maybe precisely, accurately, literally, perfectly true, it is that whole messy and conflicted mass of all the things being said that in fact points to the truth that something, something big clearly did happen. 
and eventually you discover what exactly the big something was as you too discover as well that not every single little thing that was said right away at the beginning was necessarily perhaps exactly accurate. I feel like the Bible's Easter stories kind of read like that. Lots that's not right away clear, but my, is it ever clear that something, something big, clearly happened. And the things that are clear and consistent about the bigger than anything ever Easter thing that did happen, this is very clear in all three of the Gospels about three things consistently they say happened. Number one, Jesus died. He died brutally and totally dead. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again on Easter morning. Number two, in spite of all the scripture that had ever been written and all, and all the sermons that had ever been preached and heard and all the Bible studies that had ever been taught and studied, there was only one person in Jerusalem that weekend who saw Easter coming. And that was Jesus himself and nobody else. Because number three, everybody else, everybody else, when they first heard about Easter and even, even in pretty much every case, when they first actually saw some things of Easter with their own eyes, they did not believe it for a second. Which, let's be clear, means that if you, for example, don't know for sure what you believe, or even if you believe, that doesn't separate you from the faith or the faithful. It plants you right there in the middle with the first of the faithful who became what they did not because they personally understood and loved and believed in Jesus so perfectly and so much that they went out on Easter morning to find him where he was, but rather because Jesus understood and loved and believed in them so much that risen again, he came and found them where they were. And where they were was in a doors-locked upstairs room at the four-way intersection of faithless and hopeless and grieving and afraid. And so in Luke's telling of the story, some women, it's not exactly clear how many, maybe not even clear to Luke himself exactly how many women, went to the tomb to do things that you do do for dead bodies, only to discover not a dead body, but an empty tomb where sat says Luke, two men in dazzling clothes. Mark says there was just one man, but there you go. There's details. They found two men in dazzling clothes, said Luke, who told them then that Jesus was raised from the dead. And the women then run and find the disciples and tell them what the two men in dazzling clothes said. And the disciples then say, yeah, right. Although Peter, says Luke, Peter and another disciple, says John, Peter, with or without somebody else they agree on, went out to the tomb and confirmed that what the women had said was true. But what, what he means is that indeed the, the, the tomb was empty, although he had apparently no idea what that meant. 
plus the dazzling young man, or two dazzling young men, had apparently dazzled away by the time he, or he and the other one, got there. And so Peter, scratching his head, leaves. At which point, Luke jumps from Peter on Easter Sunday morning to two others on Easter Sunday later that afternoon, one of whom was named Cleopas and one of whom's name Luke doesn't mention. Maybe it wasn't important. Maybe he didn't know it. But we do know these two had staked their hopes on Jesus. But now, even though they had heard what the women had said, they were nevertheless feeling that they had been burned by having hoped those hopes that were that high, hopes that they had hoped upon him. Some of us have perhaps at one time or another hoped high hopes of our own, only to feel that we got burned when some of the hopes we'd hoped so highly for didn't come to pass. Some of us too have perhaps at one time or another hoped such high hopes in the direction of Jesus, only to feel that we got burned by him when he didn't seemingly come through. And sometimes then you think that you'd have been better off. At least it would hurt less if you hadn't done all that hoping in the first place. That's what it was like, I think, in Luke 24 for those two who are walking down that road because the only thing anymore they could think to do was to get out of Dodge with hopes and hearts and heads down and head for home, which in their case was a village about seven miles outside of Dodge called Emmaus. And Jesus, says Luke, came and found these two confused former hopers as they walked, but for reasons Luke leaves us to imagine they don't recognize him. They do, however, when he asked about their long faces and heavy hearts and heads down, they told him about the high hopes they had hoped upon a man named Jesus, only to have gotten burned. But they'd learned from the burns for sure, as far as Jesus was concerned and as far as hoping hopes that high was concerned, these two were one and done. They wouldn't be hoping hopes like that ever again. This hurts too much. Well, so they thought. Until this stranger, with a Bible study on the road as they walked, taught them that the very reason they thought was the reason to give up on hope was in fact the reason at last truly to hope. For Jesus' death wasn't just a part of a plan, it was the central part of the plan, the plan that God had been planning for the redemption of humankind ever since humankind from the very beginning and on and on from there had proven and kept proving its sin-persistent preference for forbidden fruits and self-rule and make me great rather than faith and faithfulness because the God who created me is great and greatly to be praised.
using their scriptures, which they had read and heard before, except, of course, like the world's best Bible study ever, they now felt like they'd never heard these things before. Using this one-on-one Bible study, Jesus shared with them the plan, shared with these two former but burned-out hopers who soon then, in spite of themselves, found themselves hoping again. At which point, over a supper, they'd invited him to share with them when they'd arrived at their homes in Emmaus. Their eyes were opened when Jesus blessed and broke the bread. And just like that, they recognized him then. And just like that, then he vanished. And just like that, then they vanished too as they ran then back to Jerusalem to tell the others about seeing Jesus. Jesus, who the others then told them had also just this afternoon appeared to Peter, although neither Luke nor anyone else mentions anything else about that, perhaps because that, our gospel reading for today says, is the moment when Jesus himself, risen from the dead, suddenly, in spite of locked doors, was there to be seen by all of them, standing right there in the room with them. And he said to all of them, doubters and former hopers, every one of them, he said to them, peace be with you. And they, seeing him then, doubt Easter still. They think they are seeing a ghost. And so Jesus shows them his flesh and blood hands. He shows them his flesh and blood feet. Flesh and blood being something ghosts don't have. And then he invites them to touch him, which were he a ghost, they wouldn't have been able to do. And then he says, you have anything to eat around here? And they gave him a piece of fish, and he ate it, something everybody knows a ghost can't do. Here's a fourth clearly clear thing the tellers of the first Easter story agree on in their telling of the story to us. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead in some ethereally, mystically, spiritual way. Jesus was raised from the dead physically, bodily, touchably. Feelably. And at now, long last knowing, finally, it's kind of a nice irony, finally for them on Easter evening, Easter in their hearts and minds and souls dawned. And when at last seeing what they had now seen and physically touching whom they had now physically touched and understanding what they were now at long last beginning to understand, he said to them, you are witnesses of it all. I will send you all my spirit and then I will send you to all of the world to tell all in the world that I did what I did for God's love for all people and for God's forgiveness for all sinners' sins. Tell the world, he would say to them elsewhere, to believe in God and to believe in me 
and to know that no matter what are the reasons that they sometimes believe that hope is naive and will only in the end disappoint and disillusion them. Tell them, I have let every disillusioning power there is do everything it could think of doing to me, and it did not, it could not, it will not, not ever defeat me. For here I am, hands, feet, fish dinners, and all, back even from all the way dead at the hands of sinners, and nothing neither death nor sin will separate my own from me and my love for forever. And the Spirit was given. And the message was shared. And it kept being shared until, my goodness, even 2,000 years later, once again, some of his followers are gathered in a room. A room where this time the doors aren't locked because in the name of the risen Christ there is no fear and all are welcome. So here are all of us in a room believing what we believe. Believing probably not every single exact same thing as everybody else here believes. Some of us not believing possibly some things we maybe wish we could believe. Some of us, me for example, maybe you too, some of us doubting, for worse or for better, it's hard to tell sometimes, some of us doubting one or two or three things we maybe used to believe, but don't think we do anymore. But nevertheless, we are here. Here, no doubt, for as many different reasons as there are different us's. Let me give you a reason to have come here, whether it's what you came here for or not. Jesus is alive. For he promised and he keeps promises. Alive, he is here. Whether we see him or not, he is here, for he promised and he keeps promises. Here, he sees you. You whom he sees as one for whom he did all that he did. And seeing you, let's be clear, by you in this case I mean you, I believe in the way that he does things. Here and now, he's speaking to you. Beside you on your road your path. And in case you aren't sure in in the noise of this world or in the noise in your head, your heart, or your soul, in case you aren't sure which of all those voices you can hear is his voice, let me suggest to you that his voice is the one that is saying something like this. My child, I know it can be frightening sometimes. I know it can be confusing sometimes. I know you wonder, doubt sometimes. I know that given all that you have felt and seen, you've sometimes wondered if you even believe in me. Sometimes, oh, my child, I believe in you. 
I believed in you all the way to a cross and to a tomb that truly is truly empty. For I love you. I love you forever and I forgive you. Leave that stuff behind. It will not define you in my eyes for a single moment, much less forever. And then listen. Listen closely, for I have something for you, something no one and nothing else can give you. Listen to this. Peace be with you. John, who saw with his own eyes what we are promised we will one day see with our eyes, writes, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this. When he is revealed, we will be like him. For we will see him as he is and as he ever will be. Hallelujah and amen.